open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. I think that's the right chapter. We're going to pick it up to tonight, just really wanting to focus on the road to the cross. You know the story. Jesus has been falsely accused by the religious leaders of his day. He has gone through something of a mock trial. He's been tried before the religious leaders there in Israel. And then he's also now ultimately been handed over to the Roman authorities. Pilate has tried him. He has sent him to Herod. Herod has tried him, sent him back to Pilate. None of it, no one can really find anything guilty in Christ. Of course, he was innocent. But nevertheless, the political pressure and the pressure of these religious uh, leaders of Israel's day wanting him to be put to death, Pilate finally concedes and agrees to have him crucified. And we pick it up here, this road to the cross, and the, the various encounters just on the road to the cross, those that Jesus would touch even in his final moments uh, before he was you know, crucified and then, of course, ultimately resurrected. I'm picking it up in verse 26. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man. Is that what your Bible reads in, verse, in chapter 23? Okay, I wanted to make sure I had the right chapter. I forgot to put the reference here, but I think that was right. Okay. So as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So on the road to the cross, the first person that we are introduced to here is Simon of Cyrenian, uh, of Cyrene, a, a Cyrenian. Now, what are the chances? This, this is a man coming from a, a place of, called Cyrene, which was a town in North Africa. He's coming to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. And as he comes into town, he is recruited by the Roman soldiers just randomly to help Jesus carry the cross up to the place of Calvary where he would be crucified. I mean, it was a one in two and a half million chance that Simon would end up. That's how many people would swell there in the city of Jerusalem during Passover. But of course, in, in the kingdom of God, there are no chances. There are no coincidences. This would become something of a divine appointment for Simon of Cyrene. You see, Jesus was weakened by the uh, chastening, by the beating, by the scourging. And he really just wasn't physically able to manage the cross, the big heavy wood up all the way to the hill of Calvary. And so the Roman soldiers recruit this man in. Now, the scriptures give some other references to uh, Simon. Uh, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So Mark, who would write his gospel story many years later, uh, most believe he got his account from Peter. Uh, he, he knows uh, Simon. In other words, Simon has come to faith during this experience of helping Christ carry the cross. And even his sons now are known within the Christian community. In the book of Romans, Paul would say, greet Rufus. That would be Simon's son, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. So it appears that Simon of Cyrene, who just randomly got this real terrible duty of having to carry the cross, 
It wasn't such a terrible duty after all. It became something of a spiritual moment for him. And I'm encouraged by that, that the Lord uses every opportunity as a divine moment, as a divine opportunity, and it all begins at the cross. Simon, who carried this cross, saw and heard something of the story. He was introduced to the person of Christ. He would follow him all the way and watch his death, but he would then later become a believer, and his family would become known within the Christian community. Even Simon, carrying the cross, this message is communicated to him that Jesus is dying for his sins. Look on with me, verse 27. The next group that we see are the mourning women of Jerusalem that are gathered there just to watch the spectacle. Verse 27. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? So Jesus, as he's on his way to the cross... These women that are just kind of mourning, a a great crowd has come to gather and watch this event. And these are not necessarily followers of Christ, but still just the drama. Just You can imagine what he must have looked like after being beaten by the Roman guards and scourged and spit upon and the crown of thorns upon his head and the blood straining down. and, And they see this horror and they just weep. Just the emotion of it touches them. But Jesus, in his You know, even in his most trying moment, his thoughts are for others. And he says to the women, don't weep for me. Weep for the spiritual condition of your nation. Because a time is coming, if they will do this to their Messiah, imagine what they will do when God begins to send the the Roman army to judge this nation for rejecting their Messiah. This is the time when all will be wishing they, they didn't even have children to manage because it will be so horrible. Jesus is prophetically warning them of the consequences that are coming to the nation as they have rejected Christ, their Messiah. And I was touched by that. Jesus, even in his moment, he, his most difficult moment, his heart is for the people. His heart is for the nation. And he says, listen, don't, don't, don't worry about me. But be praying, be interceding, be worrying, be weeping for the spiritual condition of your nation. Boy, that's a good word for us tonight. You know, we we are so often caught up in our own drama and our own issues, our own priorities, that we fail to consider what's happening in our community, what's happening in our nation, what's the spiritual climate of my generation What's going on, Lord? I need to be spiritually appraising, not just kind of self-focused, but thinking and praying and interceding and looking for a way to bring the gospel into this darkened time in which I live. Jesus ministering to these women in a way that is completely selfless. Let's look on verse 32. We see how those who literally nailed him up on the cross 
respond. Verse 32, then those who crucified him, uh, excuse me, verse 32, there were also uh, uh, two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had done, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the, on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. So he finally arrives at this place called Calvary. Calvary, also known as Golgotha. Literally, it means the place of the skull. Uh, in Latin, it was called Calvary. You didn't know that you went to Skull Chapel, did you? But that's what Calvary means. It's that place, that mountain upon which Christ was crucified. And so he arrives and, you know, it's brutal. They nail him to this cross. The, the crucifixion was uh, the most brutal uh, execution style uh, in, within the Roman Empire. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, it was Ill- illegal for you to ever be crucified. They could put you to death, but not by crucifixion. It was so hideous, such a torture, such a difficult thing. And so Jesus is brought to this place of Calvary. His, he is literally nailed with you know, uh, spikes to the wood of the cross and lifted up. And he's, he's crucified between two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And what is Jesus? How does Jesus respond? What comes up out of his spirit in this moment of great agony? Father, forgive them. They don't, don't know what they're doing. He's speaking to these, of course, even uh, those that would put him there, but even specifically those that have nailed him to the cross. This would be a fulfillment of prophecy. It was in Psalm 22 that it was cro- that his hands and feet would be pierced. It was in Psalm 22 that it was discussed that they would cast lots for his clothing. None of this is really happening by accident, but rather by the divine plan of God. God is accomplishing something here. This is not men abusing Christ. It is, but that's not. They're not in control. God is. Putting, his, putting sin upon His Son and allowing the wrath and the curse and the penalty for the sins of the world to be laid upon Him. And He is now laying down His life as a sacrifice for sin. And that's why He says, Father, forgive them. I know that I am here to pay the sins of the world. I know that I am here to offer forgiveness to mankind. And this comes up from his spirit, the love of Christ. Listen, if, if Good Friday says anything to us, it declares very boldly how much God loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his own son to die this horrible death on the cross. The Rome, uh, book of Romans says in ver- chapter 5 and verse 8, you don't need to turn, I'll just quote a few verses to you quickly. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ didn't die for good people. Christ didn't come to the earth because we were so worthy of that love. He came for sinners. Even those that would nail, even those hardened Roman centurions who would drive the stakes through this man, how many times they had done it before? How many uh, criminals had they executed this way? Just another day's work. 
And they nail him to this cross and out of his spirit, Father, forgive them. This is the love of God, even while we were sinners. And that speaks to our hearts today. We're still just sinners. We're still just people that are broken and falling short of God's glory and God's call upon our life. But he loves us still. Christ died while we were in that state. That's the love of God so demonstrated at the cross. There's a powerful witness when Christ goes through this ordeal. We're going to see this because even one of these hardened Roman centurions is going to be touched in a deep way. And I want to encourage your heart tonight to recognize that, that there, is, there is something so powerful that it can pierce even the heart, most hardened and most, uh, you know, uh, battle-worn heart. Even a Roman centurion can be so moved and so touched. And it's this, this grace of God that is flowing through Christ in the midst of such horrible persecution. What comes out of his life and mouth is love. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. This is God's word to us as followers of Jesus. He says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The Apostle Paul would encourage Christ's followers to follow Christ. That look, in the same way that Jesus was able to express the love of God, even through being his his own personal mistreatment, so you serve the Lord without being completely self-defensive, without feeling like you've got to get even, without feeling like you've got to be on guard. Trust the Lord with your life. And allow Him to use your life in a setting that may not even be pleasant, but you're not a complainer, you're not striking out, you're not uh, disputing. Rather, you are demonstrating the love of God. That's when, when love speaks the loudest, when it's undeserved. And yet, it's so powerful and meets the heart. This is the love that comes through Christ. Look on with me, verse 35. There will, of course, be the mockers that would be there at the cross. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the King of the Jews. An opportunity for all his enemies to really have their day. They have their moment. They've finally got this Jesus who has eluded them for three and a half years. This Jesus who has caused them all kinds of religious and political trouble not by any sin or any evil or any stirring of his own, but just their own jealousy, their own pride. Jesus coming and speaking the truth of God's word. Jesus demonstrating the power of God through the healing miracles of his ministry. But the, Jew, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, intimidated. Who's this, this guy that we don't, he's not one of us. He's outside our religious kind of control and manipulation and and he threatens us. 
And so now they've got him on the cross. Okay, you claim to be the Christ. You claim you had so many miracles that you did when you were, you know, living in, among us. Why don't you just save yourself now? If you're legit, go ahead and save yourself now. Of course, the irony is this. <laughs> Jesus could have saved himself. Jesus could have come down from that cross in a, in a moment. He had told Pilate that if he, if he wanted to call a legion of angels to come and defend him, he could have in an instant. He was not just a man, he was God. He had that power available to him, but he restrained and allowed himself to suffer under the, the will of the Father that he might earn redemption for the world. And the irony is, had he saved himself, he would have aborted God's plan to save the rest of us. He stayed on that cross because he was committed to our salvation. But think of the temptation. You know, save yourself, satisfy your own needs and desires. Think of the, you know, the appeal to pride. Listen, prove yourself, vindicate who you are. Those whisperings that he must have felt in that moment of agony. But he surrendered his will to the will of the Father. You'll remember it was just hours earlier that he had wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying this out with the Father. Father, if there's another way, then let them take this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. He had surrendered his will to the Father. Listen to what Peter would say in 1 Peter 2.22 concerning Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled and mocked, as we just read, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He entrusted his soul to the will of his Father. And this is the, this is the victory that was won through Jesus' obedience, his humility, his love. These are the things that speak to us so powerfully through the cross. And the Father, the Father allowing this for the sake of His love of the world. Remember there were two criminals there, one on His right and one on His left. Take a look at verse 39. Let's look at the exchange with them. While they're all three up there hanging, it's a slow death, the cross. You don't just die, you know, instantly. It's hours and hours of hanging in agony. And then verse 39, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Hey, get me down from here too. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I love this exchange at the cross. It speaks so powerfully of the gospel. Here they are. One is mocking him. But the other, this is a moment of truth for him. He's on the cross. He's dying. He knows that these are but the last hours of his life. 
And something now of truth and honesty is coming up in his heart. He says he's a sinner. He acknowledges his sin. We're here justly. I deserve this punishment. He's acknowledging his sin. He has nothing to commend himself with before God. He doesn't try to negotiate with Jesus. Now, Jesus, listen, I know I'm up here on the cross, but I'm a, I was a pretty good guy. I mean, I made a few mistakes, but listen, I think I deserve to be with you in paradise. He doesn't try to appeal to Jesus on the basis of his own righteousness or his own goodness, his own merit. He simply appeals to the mercy and the grace of God. Jesus, take me with you. I don't deserve it. I'm here and I belong here. But I believe in you. I believe that you are the Lord. And the cross, it's, it's humbled him, but it's also brought him to a place of honesty. And he sees something in Christ. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. He knows that Jesus is innocent. And he calls him Lord. He is acknowledging Jesus as Lord. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What faith? We're about to die, but I believe you're God. And I believe that you're going to have a kingdom beyond this moment at the cross. He was already believing in the resurrection. He had more faith than some of the disciples that had been with Jesus, right? They were, they were scattered, and even after the death and the burial, they were all doubters. Jesus had told them, I'm going to rise again. Here's a man at the cross and in this moment of honesty, what a coincidence. You know, this may have been the best thing that ever happened to this guy. Getting caught, getting crucified, and having an opportunity to meet Jesus just before he went to meet Jesus. <laughs> just before he went to stand before the Lord. And what a beautiful, beautiful picture. Romans 10 and verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's so simple, and yet it's so powerful. It is so profound. It is but to trust in the offer that God has so generously made. If you will but put your faith in Jesus... If you will, but like this, this sinner, come to the cross and recognize who he is and why he's there and what he's done and what's been accomplished, God will forgive you of all your sin. There was no time for this man to, to come down off the cross and, and do some good works to kind of contribute to his salvation. He didn't even have a chance to come down and get baptized. He was just there on the cross and Jesus says, you will be with me today in paradise. This assurance of his salvation. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is a real uh, picture of grace. This thief on the cross has no merit, no standing. He's guilty. But he's saved. And he's saved by what? The grace of God that is coming to him through his faith in, his, in the final moments of his life. And that's the way grace comes to all of us, through faith. Nothing we deserve, nothing we earn, nothing we have to kind of work up into. No, you come as you are. 
who you are and acknowledge your situation and appeal to God's mercy and trust in Jesus and His grace will come to you. The other thing that it says is that it's never too late. Boy, almost, almost too late for this thief on the cross, but it's never too late. Think about this. This man has lived a life of sin and crime. And in the the final moments of his life, the Lord is willing to save him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's not too late. Listen, if you've got breath, if you're alive and you have an opportunity to come to to Jesus, it's not too late. Some think, you know, they they confuse themselves. Oh, it's too late for me. I'm too far gone. I'm just too... I've, I've lived a life that's just too shameful. Any more shameful than this man, this thief and murderer who was being executed at the cross? It's never too late to turn to Jesus and receive the grace that he offers at the cross. Look on with me. Let's see. Let's check back with this centurion, one that no doubt nailed him to the cross. Verse 44. Excuse me. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And then the sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. These events that kind of even the earth The sun is darkening. The other Gospels tell us there was a great earthquake. There is something even happening in the natural realm in this moment that Christ is giving His last breath. It says that the temple, within the temple, a veil was torn in two. Now, the veil within the temple, it was this separation between the very holy of holies, the inner presence of God, and the outer court of the temple. And only the high priest could enter into that Holy of Holies and only once a year to make offering and sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And it was separated by this veil. This veil was a very thick curtain, if you imagine, very thick and woven together to separate that inner presence. And God, in instructing the, the, the building of the temple and this veil between the, the holy place and the outward place, was signifying that, listen, God's holy presence cannot be approached by sinful man. Only once a year the high priest, after offering sin for himself and properly uh, you know, garbed in the, in the priestly garments, bringing an offering in, God would allow it once a year signifying the unapproachableness of God's holy presence by man. There is a separation between God and man. And the separation is is the result of sin. And as Jesus pays the price for sin on the cross in that instant, the veil is torn in two. What is God saying? He's saying, I've made a way. You who have been separated from me, you who by sin have been removed from the holy presence of God, that door has been swung wide open, not by your righteousness, but by the provision of Christ's righteousness, which has now been credited to those who embrace him by faith. 
He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. We now have access into that holy place. We can come boldly. The Scripture says in Hebrews 4 and 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of what? Grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That sense of, of not being able to come near God. That's a good sense. That's true. You've probably heard people say that, right? Oh, I'm not coming to church. I'm afraid the building will fall down if I walk in there, right? They have this sense that I don't belong in, in the presence of God. His holiness and I are not a good fit. And that's true, except through Christ. Now, because of what Jesus has done, God invites you. Come on in. Come boldly. To the throne of grace. Come and receive the mercy. Come and be be cleansed of your sin. Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So when the centurion sees all of this, and hears all of this, and, and, uh, and witnesses this event, and he's heard the words from Jesus, Father, forgive them. He's watched this whole thing play out. He then glorifies God, certainly. This was a righteous man. And, you know, again, the hardness, the, 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 the battle-worn centurion, but in the face of God, in the face of God's love, it's love that draws the hearts of men. It's love that breaks through the hardness and the, and, the, and the barriers. It's the love of God. The Bible says it's His kindness that leads you to repentance. Who of us can stand before a holy God except by His mercy, by His love? All of us are guilty. None of us are righteous. None of us are worthy. But because of His love, because of what He has provided for us at the cross and the resurrection, we come with great confidence. There is a watching crowd there as well. Look at verse 48. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. There's always a crowd to watch this kind of an event. People gather to see what's going on. It was quite gory and gruesome and yet people want to watch and see this is these are this is not a crowd that is necessarily a, a, a coming to faith in him it says that they beat their breasts it's a it's an expression of pity and emotion what a shame wow look at this man everybody thought he was something and now he's dead oh what a shame too bad and they go home but there's no faith in him. There's no real coming into relationship. I, I think of even today, the crowd that comes to, to witness Jesus, the people that know about Jesus, the people that, that come and know something of the story, and maybe even moved with some emotion. Wow, that's an, wow, he died on the cross. Wow. And then they beat their chest and say, oh, what a shame. And they go home and they go back to their life. There's no really coming to faith in Christ. God is looking for people who will not just come and witness and say, wow, what a shame, and, and kind of observe. God's looking for those that would come and say, as this 
As the thief on the cross said, Jesus, will you save me? You are a righteous man. You are the Son of God. I recognize this love is your appeal to me to to come in faith and receive eternal life. I want you to change my heart. I want you to save me from my sin. I want to be a new person in relationship with you. This crowd, they watched, but they did not come to faith. Look with me in verse 49, and we'll close here tonight through the end of the chapter. Those who loved him. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was part of the council that condemned Christ, but he was a a dissenting vote. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. He was looking for uh, God's Messiah. And he, the Bible tells us in other places, he became a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate, the Roman ruler who had put him to the cross, and asked for the body of Jesus. Verse 53, Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. The other gospel writers tell tell us that this was his personal tomb. He put Jesus in his own tomb. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. They were going to anoint the body, but they, and they rested. They ran out of time and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. It was the beginning of the Sabbath, so they rested. They would wait these days and they would return. But these were those that loved him, this Joseph of Arimathea. The Gospel of John tells us that Nicodemus was there with Joseph. He was a Pharisee who had come to Jesus by night. The Bible says he too became a believer. Both Joseph and Nicodemus, they broke out of their religious uh, order. They, they, They dissented from the religious pressure and they came at this time to honor Jesus It is death. The women that followed him, they too, they loved him. And they wanted to honor him in his death. They did not know that when they would arrive, these ladies, that he would would not be there. They did not know. They went there totally prepared to anoint and embalm this body where they saw he was laid. And on their way to the tomb, the only thing they're thinking about is who's going to roll the stone away? How are we going to get in there to do what we've come to do? The story doesn't end here, does it? We will end it here tonight. And let that be a little anticipation for Sunday. The story is just getting started because the resurrection is just about to occur. But we see this passion. We see the price of sin. We see the, the, the weight of sin. We see Jesus being cursed because He became sin. God dealing a death blow to sin, to death, to the grave, and offering forgiveness and eternal life to all who will look to Jesus in faith, 
repent and turn from their ways, their sin, and come to faith in Christ. And then you can come boldly and receive grace and mercy from the very presence of God. It's a beautiful story. It's still the power of the gospel. It's still the most profound uh, truth that we can share with anyone. Your sins can be forgiven because God loved you so much that He sent His Son, Jesus, to the cross to die and pay the price for your sin. But He rose. He rose in victory. It would be nice if He said, listen, I've come to die for your sin. Well, how do we know that you know your death on the cross actually paid the price in full? It's the resurrection that gives us that confidence that what He said He was accomplishing at the cross, He in fact did accomplish at the cross. And what a blessing that we have tonight to remember it, to celebrate it, and to embrace it. Let's close now in a word of prayer. And then we'll celebrate communion together here as we dismiss. Father, we thank You for this Good Friday and what it means to us that have come to faith in Christ. Lord, our faith, our salvation, our eternal hope and future, it all begins at the cross. That is the place where sin was atoned. That is the place where You rescued us from our condition. And as we close here tonight, Lord, just prepare to remember You through the partaking of communion. I want to give opportunity, Lord, as our heads are bowed, I want to give opportunity for anyone that is here that needs to respond to this powerful truth afresh and anew. And if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus in a personal way, I'm not talking about you kind of one of the crowd who has observed from afar and, but gone on home to your life. I'm talking about someone who you realize, I need to come into a true relationship with Him. Just like that thief on the cross, I need to say, Jesus, forgive me and Lord, save me. I want to be in Your eternal kingdom. And may it begin today as You cleanse me from my sin and come into my life. I'd love to pray for you if you're here tonight and you want to receive Jesus for the first time. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to come back to the Lord. You know, many come to faith in Christ, but then through life and trial and circumstance, through sin and distraction, they, they drift away. They, they, they came sincerely and in faith, and the Lord met them. And they have relationship, but that relationship has gone dormant, if you will. You're no longer walking in real sincerity with the Lord. You know, as we come to this table tonight where we remember His love for us, it is such an appropriate place to rededicate and recommit your life to Him tonight. I'd love to pray for you as well. If you're here tonight and you want to receive the Lord Jesus for the very first time and ask Him to cleanse you of your sin and become your Lord and Savior, or if you're here tonight and you need to rededicate, recommit your life, afresh and anew and come back to Jesus 
in the commitment and heart of sincerity that you know He's asking of you. I would ask you, if that's you tonight, raise your hand right now. Let me see you. And I'll pray for you. God bless you here. A couple hands in the center. In the back there. My left. Any others? God bless you. Anyone else? The Lord speaking to you. A number of hands. We want to just give a moment for the Lord. Listen, he's, He loves you. This is your moment. If, if He's tugging at your heart and you need to respond, we're just going to pray and ask God to meet you. God bless you. God bless you. Any others? I'm just going to wait here for a moment. I, I think the Lord is speaking to many hearts tonight. Raise your hand as He speaks to you. Anyone else just before I pray? A number have responded. Anyone else? Amen. And so, Lord, for these hearts responding to you tonight, Lord, I pray that you would meet them. I pray that your spirit would comfort them. That as they come in honesty and say, Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me from my sin. I don't deserve your love, your mercy, but oh, how I need it tonight. I acknowledge, Lord, just as that sinner on the cross next to you did, Lord, I, I don't deserve grace. I deserve judgment. I, I, I've, I've fallen short. Oh, but I believe that you died on that cross for me. And I would ask you to cleanse me of all my sin. Wash me clean. That I might live with you, Lord, not only in this life and having your spirit help and, and guide my steps, but Lord, that I would one day be joined with you in paradise, that I would live eternally with you. That's your promise, eternal life. I receive it tonight, Lord, by faith, by grace, in Jesus' name, amen.